0: Okay, welcome, <laughs> welcome. Good evening. Sorry for that little fall start there. Um, uh, welcome to class number five uh, of the Dracula class, um, and let's um, let's uh, talk about Dracula. No, let's do a quick announcement first. Uh, one uh, exciting thing that has come out this week. I've been talking about the uh, the summer courses, and of course, those are still there and still as exciting as they were last week, but uh, we have a new thing, which is an upcoming event, an upcoming conference. Um, it is almost time for Midmoot, again, the Mythgard Mid-Atlantic Speculative, uh, Fiction Symposium once more. Um, sorry, hang on a second, my audio is still sorting itself out. Okay, there we go. Um, anyway, so, um, I wanted to draw your attention to this if you haven't seen it. If you live anywhere within range of, you know, driving range of D.C., um, this is a really fantastic um, a really fantastic conference. We've done this. We did this last year. It was awesome. Uh, it's going to be at the University of Maryland again. You can see the details here. The weekend's going to be the weekend of Bilbo and Frodo's birthday, for crying out loud, at the University of Maryland. Um, and uh, the biggest, most important thing we have here, a lot of the details are still forthcoming. We're working out a lot of the uh, the sort of the finer points of exactly what we're going to do and all that kind of thing. But, um, but we have the date and we have the time and we have the place and, uh, we have a call for papers. That's a really important thing. So if you want to, uh, make, uh, make a presentation at Midmoot, all of the information is here on the webpage. So I, uh, yes, yes, Tom, this year with, this year we are not in fact conflicting with the University of Maryland playing at home against Michigan for crying out loud, which we were last year, we did MidMoot in the midst of a sea of yellow and 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 blue, uh, and we're not going to do that again. Um, and so, so Patricia, great question. Patricia's asking, uh, will there be another MythMoot? Yes. Well, yes, there will. Um, so I have two pieces of good news in response to that. P- piece of good news number one: um, uh, this year, MidMoot. Is not just gonna be a little like few hour conference like it was last year where we just did for like the afternoon of the of the one day. It's gonna be a weekend conference like Mythmoot of old, right? So this is gonna be in same region, same kind of conference. So everything that was awesome about Mythmoot, you'll be able to get here this year. So if you enjoyed Mythmoot, you should definitely come because it's gonna be great. Um, the second piece of good news is that we are in fact still working on the uh, even more awesome uh, MythMood, um, which we're we're going to be expanding into a, a you know a, a, four, a full four day conference. We'll be able to, to, to do a lot more and get into a lot more things. Um, that's going to be uh, that's going to be later on. It's not going to be this year. Um, we're looking probably at next year, but more details on that forthcoming later on. I don't want I don't want to go too far into there. We're still we're still finalizing things there. Um, but anyway, so we've got this, and Yana and expanding into Europe. You know what, Yana? if you want to, like, if you got some people who want to work together on organizing a European conference, I am totally behind that. Um, uh, I don't have any plans to, to, to whip one up right now, but I absolutely would not have any problem doing that. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, but let's... Um, uh, let's 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 look forward to that. But in any case, we have concrete uh, dates and details here on uh, Midmoot, the MythGuard Mid Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, uh, which is fun to say very fast. Uh, go to the MythGuard website to the events, and there we have it—the first entry there. If you want to find more details and to get the call for papers and everything, so that is our big announcement of the day. The second, um, the second. Th- thing that I just wanted to, to kind of this sort of a side note um, I'm sometimes guilty of kind of taking things for granted uh, you know not um, uh, sort of assuming people know th- you know sort of the things that I think about all the time uh, you know sort of assuming other people know them and they don't always so you know, I know that many of you know the answer to this question, but I think that some of you might not. Do you do you know what Signum University is? Right. You know, here we are. This is the Mythgard Academy, and we and we talked about the fundraiser and everything, which of course makes this series all all possible. Um, but I think a lot of people don't really understand or appreciate what Signum University is and how it's related to the Mythgard Institute, which is the which is the host of this of this program. Um, uh, uh, Sigma University, of course, whose logo is hovering behind my It's not actually a halo, right? Uh, there's 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 a reason. There's an eagle hovering over my temple, uh, 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 you know, every week. Um, and this is this is the uh, uh, the Sigma University um, logo. So anyway, Sigma University. I won't go into too much detail because I'm the president of Sigma University, and I could go on for a really long time about Sigma University and why it's awesome, but. Suffice to say, at Signum University, we're building the university of the future. It's an all online university, and uh, uh, and we're trying to basically hit the reset button on higher education in America and do things differently and really create a different world for people. Um, the Mythgard Institute is a, a you know a program focused on you know encouraging the study of speculative fiction, fantasy, and science fiction literature. That's hosted within Signum University. It's always been really the heart of this initial premiere program that we have put together, our master's degree program in language and literature at Sydenham University. Through MythGuard, of course, we're committed to programs like this one in the MythGuard Academy uh, to public open uh, uh, forums and, 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 and seminars where we can, you know, talk through our favorite books and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that we can do and a lot that we are going to do, um, studying the, you know, supporting the study of fantasy and science fiction. But I do want to make sure that everybody understands, Signum University is the framework uh, organization. Yes, exactly, that's Jan's uh, phrase. Um, it, is, um, it is the institution that makes all of this possible. It's the, uh, the, the program that we have where you can actually get a degree in studying, uh, uh, you know, studying this literature that you love so much and that we take seriously and more seriously than most, than most other institutions and where you'll have more opportunity uh, to, you know, interact with, you know, awesome world-class professors. You know, when I talk about the courses, that's what we're, you know, when I talk about our spring classes, our fall, our, you know, our summer classes, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the courses in our MA program, um, where we bring our students together in live interactive classrooms with really, you know, the greatest scholars in this field. Um, and our students have gone on to PhD programs, they're teaching now, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're teaching now at colleges, they're, they're publishing, they're, you know, presenting at conferences all over the place. So many people who have gone from being really enthusiastic, you know, amateur readers to becoming independent scholars and really gaining respect within the scholarly community in, in, in Tolkien studies and fantasy studies. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's lots, of, uh, uh, lots of things. Yeah, you know, Michael, yeah, lots of universities have MOOCs and lots of online stuff. Online stuff is totally uh, mainstream. But there's a, there's, there's, there are good ways and bad ways to do online stuff. And we're different than a lot of people. Um, you know, we really do things... Uh, you know, our focus is on community, on people, on actually just connecting teachers and students and students with each other and creating an, an environment where you can really be at a school, in a class, with classmates, rather than just being, you know, taking classes on your own at home through your computer. Anyway, um, I'm... Uh, I, I as I said, I could go on about this for a really long time, and I don't want to turn this into a into a long sermon about Signum University. But I did want to mention it again. It's a, it's a thing that um, again it's uh, it's it kind of easy for me to sort of take for granted, but I want to make sure not to take it for granted, and that everybody recognizes um, sort of what Mythgard is and and its relationship to uh, to Signum in the way in which it it sort of fits in with Signum's overall vision. But anyway just to make sure everybody understands the vocabulary. Now, let us get back to Dracula. I want to start... Arthur had posed a question first, um, and Arthur, I'm going to tell you in advance, I don't know the answer to your question, but here is his question, to which I don't know the answer. Um, he, he's talking about Dracula's regression in age, right? He's old when we meet him in Transylvania, white-haired when, he's, when we meet him in Transylvania. He gets younger. Um, uh, he gets younger even before he bites English victims, Arthur. He gets younger... Um, in biting Transylvanian victims, right, when Jonathan sees him in his coffin uh, the night or the day before he leaves, um, he's all bloated with blood and his hair is turned gray, right? Um, he then bites English victims, in particular the sailors on board the ship, it seems, um, and, he, uh, and he then um, uh, uh, is even younger when Jonathan sees him again in the park, right, with Mina uh, that time when he had his little uh, um, shock, right? Um, which uh, induced Mina to open the diary that she promised she would never open as long as she lived, and it took her like two months. By the way, this is a trend in this book, right? Anytime anybody says, we must, ne- let's, we swear to secrecy that we will never tell anybody, you can guarantee they're going to be telling everybody in like a couple chapters. This happens when everyone's like, we will never tell Arthur that uh, we also gave our blood to, to Lucy, right? But And, and like, <laughs> Van Helsing is spilling the beans like instantly, right? Mina does this whole thing about I'll never open this, and then of course she opens it. Anyway, it's 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 uh, it's kind of funny. Anyway, so okay. Uh, point is, so he's he's getting younger, and Arthur says, um, uh, "Is there?" Um, um, so it's, it's first, the first part of his question was, is there a difference between the Transylvanian cuisine and the English cuisine? No, no, no. it's the Transylvanian people that make him that first stage younger. So it's not like that there's something in English people that rejuvenates him. Um, the implication there to me is that he was in some kind of state of dormancy. No, Tom, I don't think it has anything to do with paprika. I, I think that he seemed, he seemed to be not biting people. Um, I, 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 why? I'm not 100% sure why. Uh, I, I can't really answer that, but it seems that he's basically stepping up his program in order to rejuvenate himself for the going to England, right? Yeah, exactly. And he was on some kind of diet. I don't know why. Um, but uh, Arthur, the second part of Arthur's question is: there an endpoint to his uh, to his de aging? Will he stop at a hopefully non sparkly teenage Dracula? Uh, will he uh, go back to toddler or embryo Dracula? I don't know. Again, not really sure. Um, we don't. We're not given uh, any real. Um, we're not given any real evidence to really determine that. Um, the implication seems to be: think about Jonathan's expression, right? Now, Jonathan is not an authority on this. He doesn't have. Doesn't. Doesn't know, right? But when Jonathan sees him again in the park, he doesn't say he's even younger than he was before, right? He just says he's got young again. And the expression that Jonathan uses seems to suggest that at least in Jonathan's own mind, he's reached his end point, right? Like, this this was the goal, for him to be in the, uh, you know, in sort of the fullness of his youth and strength. Um, He has gone from elderly, when Jonathan first met him, back to you know, in his, like, youthful prime. And that seemed, uh, there seems to be a fair, plenty of good reasons to think that that's where he's going to stick and that he's not going to actually regress to childhood. Um, Kathy White's the paprika theory that seems entirely possible. Um, anyway, okay. Um, <clears throat> so many of these questions, I can't answer <clears throat> because we're not given enough information on them. And, uh, you know, we can speculate, but we have to acknowledge, sort of, and recognize that we're speculating. But let's get to the text, because as usual, we have a lot to go through here tonight. Uh, Tonight we're talking about possible impossibilities, the difficulty of getting people to believe anything uh, in uh, this uh, skeptical 19th century, as uh, Dr. Van Helsing calls it. But first... Uh, Let's do a quick check-in with our friend Renfield, because uh, we've been missing him, and he's uh, been out of the spotlight while we've been focusing on Lucy, and while, indeed, the entire narrative is focusing on Lucy, indeed, while Dr. Seward himself is away from his asylum most of the time and spending time with Lucy uh, so that we don't really know anything about uh, uh, Renfield. But there are two things that we get about Renfield, actually not in this week's reading, but in last week's reading. Um, that are worth noting in passing. Of course, we'll come back to Renfield very much more, very soon. Um, But I I, want to not miss these bits as well. Um, This is uh, Dr. Seward when Renfield breaks into his study and slashes him with a knife so that his blood runs down his wrist onto the ground. Uh, And and we get this happening. My wrist bled freely... And quite a... His wrist didn't breathe, that would be bad. My wrist bled freely, and quite a little pool trickled onto the carpet. I saw that my friend was not intent on further effort, and occupied myself binding up my wrist, keeping a wary eye on the prostrate figure all the time. By the way, it seems that one of the obvious... prerequisites uh, to being a lunatic asylum man, as Lucy calls him, is uh, uh, some experience with fisticuffs. I love how Dr. Seward describes it, and then I got in my right, right, and, uh, and takes him down. So uh, uh, you've got to be a bit of a pugilist, apparently, in order to do this job well. Anyway, okay. When the attendants rushed in and we turned our attention to him, his employment positively sickened me. He was lying on his belly on the floor, licking up like a dog the blood which had fallen from my wounded wrist. He was easily secured, and to my surprise, went with the attendants quite placidly, simply repeating over and over again, the blood is the life. The blood is the life. Yes, Arthur Renfield has indeed read Leviticus. That is exactly what he's quoting, as he himself later on will acknowledge. Um, So no coincidence there. That's absolutely what is in his mind. Now, um what's going on here? It's a little hard to figure out, right? Um, especially since we're not spending a whole lot of time with Renfield. Remember, when Dracula goes away, right, and is hanging out with Lucy, and he leaves Carfax, Renfield thinks he's been abandoned, right? He can, he apparently has some way of sensing the proximity of the Count. So when the Count goes away, he thinks he's gone. Remember, he starts his fly catching again, right? If I want to do it, I'll have to do it myself, he says, right? After having given up on all on quote all that rubbish, right, and then of course later after that the count comes back and he throws his flies away again. Um, so, first, where is this exactly in that cycle? Do we you know is this something that he's doing because Dracula is near or something that he's doing because Dracula is not near? Right, um, that's not entirely clear to me. Which 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 way that is? Um, it's possible. That um, it's possible that he this is an act of desperation, you know, when he thinks the count is not there. It's possible this is some kind of an act of emulation. It's not really clear. Is this, for instance, uh, remember Doctor Seward saying he wonders what the later stages of uh, of his zoophagus project would be? Right, you know, the way he he does his uh, his tabulations. Right? You know, you've got the flies, and he keeps track of how many flies each spider eats so that he knows how much life that's worth. Right? So you've got uh, you've got a spider, which presumably is worth its own life, whatever unit of life it is that Renfield uses. And then it's got, like, four fly units. Right? He's so got a four fly spider, which is pre- presumably worth more to him if he eats it than, like, a two fly spider. Right? Obviously. So... Um, and then, of course, you feed the many spiders to the, to the sparrow, so you get the, the cumulative effect there, and he wants a cat to feed them to. So remember, Dr. Van Helsing is saying, or excuse me, Dr. Seward is saying, I wonder what would be the later steps, right, and where he would end up going to. And, um, and then he says, you know, you can see where, the, where Dr. Seward's kind of mind is going there, or what his suspicions are. as He says, I wonder, I wonder how he values a human life, or if only at one, right? Is, 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 it, is it just one unit, or is it higher um you know, greater than like the unit of uh, of the of the flying, and um, we so so again, it's hard for me to kind of interpret this particular scene as far as what it tells us about Renfield's relationship with Dracula. On the one hand, we see him here emulating Dracula far more closely than he has ever done before, right? Dracula doesn't eat spiders. Um, but he does drink blood, and so we see Renfield drinking blood. But, but again, is this new? Would he have done this on other opportunities? Had he done this before? Is that what he did to get himself thrown into the into the, uh, into the the asylum in the first place? I don't know. Um, I, presumably not, because uh, Seward calls him an, an undeveloped homicidal maniac, right? Like, he's not already homicidal, so uh, presumably he hadn't already killed anybody before he came to the asylum, or Seward wouldn't talk about him like that, but still... Um, it's um, you know. Had this been his plan? Had this been what he was working on? Or th- is this what he would have worked up to? I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, so okay. Um, so that 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 is still kind of uncertain. What we do see though is we can clearly see, without question, the harmony wh- for whatever reason it is, whether it's desperation at his absence or. Uh, emulation because of his presence, we certainly see the harmony between not only Renfield's goals but his methods, right, and Dracula's goals and method, methods. We can see how close the outlook of the zoophagus patient, who is trying to perpetuate his life, um, uh, you know, to extend his life, to, to to give himself a greater fund and resource of life, um, and Dracula, whose fund and resource of life appears to be. Something like indefinite. I say something like Arthur because I'm coming back to your rejuvenation question, right? It seems that if Dracula does not consume any more lives, right? If he does not consume the blood of others, um, then he ages, right? Would Dracula eventually die of old age? It seems conceivable, right? If he well, could, he starve to death essentially, um, given his aging. Seems likely, frankly. I, again, we don't know for sure, but it seems um, it seems likely. But Jennifer Miner is saying uh, it feels um, sort of religious or ritualistic. That, you know, between his prostrate posture and the repeated phrase, and then Jennifer, of course, the added bonus that the repeated phrase is a, is a biblical quote. Yes, I agree with you. Um, I'm not skipping that, but I'm going to skip it for now. Um, all I'll say is we're going to come back to that. Uh, well, I have no intention of skipping the religious implications. In fact, there's a whole bunch of, uh, generally religious and specifically Christian references that have been happening in the story so far that I've kind of skimmed over. I'm not planning to do that indefinitely. We'll come back and talk about that, uh, much more, uh, soon, but not quite yet. Um, so, okay. Um... Good, um, yeah. Penny says, "Why doesn't the doctor link Renfield's actions to what he has seen and learned about Lucy and her blood-draining related death?" <sighs> because he's a bit of an idiot. Well, because his uh, he, because, as Doctor Van Helsing would say, because he has too prejudice, right? Um, we'll get there. But Penny, that's exactly a class. That's that's a classic illustration of the problem, right? The problem that Van Helsing is trying to cope with. For most, of, uh, for most of today's reading. Um, one last Renfield point, and then we'll move Well, Sharon asks a general question about Renfield. What's the purpose of Renfield in terms of the whole story? Well, he'll play a more direct role later on, but it's not even that, I think, that makes him most important. Renfield is a really interesting touchstone, I think. <clears throat> I'm tempted to call him a foil for, the, for Dracula, for the vampire, but that's not even... Not only is that not very helpful to say, it's not even really right. He's, um... Because he's not just a foil. He is a parallel. Renfield brings... Renfield sort of shows what's at stake in vampirism. If you see what I mean by that. That is to say, if we didn't have Renfield... We might treat Dracula simply as, like, a monster, right? He's, he's, he's just antipathetic to humanity, right? He is out to destroy humans and to promote his own power, and must be stopped because he's dangerous to folks, right? We could easily look at Dracula as basically no more than that. Renfield really sort of shows really highlights, I guess I would say, the metaphysical angle on this, right? The fact that Renfield essentially becomes a do-it-yourself vampire through his desire for immortality, right? His desire to accumulate more and more life. um, Really kind of puts the entire vampirism question in a whole different context. Um, So... Yeah, but he's crazy, Michael. Yeah, ah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I. Yes, he's crazy. Of course, Doctor Seward thinks everybody's crazy. <laughs> right, Van Helsing, Lucy, everybody. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, let's let's look at our other our the one other Renfield point because from this we learn. An important thing, or rather, I would say, we this passage proves unequivocally something which might still have been an open question in some of our minds when we were looking at Renfield and particularly his interaction, his attempted interaction with uh, Dracula earlier on. So, uh, uh, read this and check out uh, and tell me what have we what what thing can we prove uh about renfield from this passage this is when he attacks the carters of course who are taking off the boxes of dirt before i could get up to him the patient rushed at them pulling one of them off the cart and and pulling one of them off the cart began to knock his head against the ground if i had not seized him just at the moment i believe he would have killed the man there and then the other fellow jumped down and struck him over the head with the butt end of his heavy whip it was a terrible blow but he didn't seem to mind it and but seized him also and struggled with the three of us pulling us to and fro as if we were kittens you know i am no lightweight and the others were both burly men at first he was silent in his fighting but as we began to master him and the attendants were putting a straight waistcoat on him i love straight waistcoat by the way it's so much better than straight jacket right it's just a straight waistcoat it sounds cute right Anyway, he began to shout, I'll frustrate them! They shan't rob me! They shan't murder me by inches! I'll fight for my lord and master! And all sorts of similar incoherent ravings. What do we learn? Okay, yes, Sarah, Renfield is super strong. Is he Dracula-level strong? Not quite sure he's quite as strong as Dracula, but we see he has unusual strength, certainly. Uh, quite remarkable strength, as Dracula had quite remarkable strength, so good. Yes, Nancy was noticing that as well. Um, more. More. What else? Yes, Rachel says he's working with Dracula, or at least thinks he is. Yes. But, Rachel, I would emphasize the second. Is he working with Dracula? Is he indeed fighting for his lord and master. What's he accomplishing here? What's he attempting to accomplish? Carita points out very fairly that crazy people are often strong in stories. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it is a thing associated with uh, the insane. Gerald Michael is right to say that he uh, understands that the box is understands what the boxes are to Dracula, right? Um, He looks out and he he sees... So this seems to be... It's it's an interesting thing, right? He sees these carters taking these boxes of what? I don't know. I mean, you can't tell from the outside that they're even full of of dirt, right? And even if you didn't know they were still full of dirt, it wouldn't be perfectly obvious what they were or what the point of them was, right? But he sees these carters taking them out of Carfax. Remember, all of the boxes were consigned to Samuel, Billington, and Whitby. Right? Remember that miraculous coincidence that the ship just happened to wreck safely in the harbor where, it was, uh, where the goods had been consigned, to, to which the goods had been consigned, right? So Samuel F. Billington, you'll remember from the correspondence that we found from him, um, you know, that, that we got included there, had them shipped down to Carfax, right? So all of the boxes come off the ship, and they get shipped by Samuel F. Billington. He arranges the shipping down to Carfax. Now, apparently, some of the boxes are being taken away from Carfax, right? by different carters. Now, so Gerald, you're, you're right, he seems to have some insight that taking the boxes away means what? Exactly. He does seem to understand that they're significant and even, in a sense, what, why they're significant for. Yeah, yeah, Nick uh, Nick Morazzo says he wants to keep Dracula close. Uh, he's preventing the movers from moving the boxes of dirt away. He does seem to understand the correlation, right? If all the boxes of dirt are leaving the house, it's like Dracula's moving out, right? Um... But... Um... What are the Carters doing? Like, are they... Notice what he he, he says in his incoherent ravings, right? Incoherent in the sense that, you know, Dr. Seward's assistant doesn't know what they mean, right? But, um... He says they shan't rob me, they shan't murder me by inches, I'll fight for my lord and master. So he believes he believes that defending the boxes is fighting for Dracula. Right? Yes, yes, Carita, it seems really clear that these carters have been hired by Dracula, right? I, I, everyone who's been this, this is how things, we know that he's made arrangements, careful arrangements in advance. Remember his conversation with Jonathan about consigning to different solicitors in different parts of the country and everything. We saw that, that not only the letter to Samuel F. Billington, but the letter to two other people, right, of a similar kind. So we see, you know, he, he's making, we know that he's made arrangements and is making arrangements. Um, this seems to be part of the plan, right, that he's, it's not all of the boxes that they're removing, They're they're taking only some of the boxes away, and that seems to be Dracula's plan. So in Renfield's eyes, right, the removal of the boxes is robbing of him, right? Robbing him of his chance for immortality, I guess, right? By taking his lord and master away, murdering him by inches, because of the depriving him of immortality, and fighting for his lord and master. so and, and, and so apparently taking the boxes away is also thwarting his lord and master, who's only just arrived. But, so what does it prove? What do we learn? Clear? What? What can we not just suspect, but actually prove after this passage? Renfield is not actively in cahoots with Dracula. That is, he is not in communication with Dracula. He is not operating under Dracula's instructions and orders if he were he would know this is Dracula's plan. He says he's fighting for Dracula. He is actually, had he succeeded, he would be thwarting Dracula's plan. Unbeknownst to him, he does not seem to be, by the fact that he talks about his lord uh, and master, it's clear that he sees himself as a servant and a faithful servant, right? Um, So yes, Mark, exactly. He is not in Dracula's confidence at all. So again, some people suspect, some people wonder, You know, like, how does Renfield know about him? Were they in communication? Had he ever been to Transylvania before? What's going on? No. I I mean, I've said before, all the evidence suggests he can just somehow detect Dracula there. He is sensitive, like Lucy is sensitive. Whether he is sensitive, like Lucy is sensitive, and this is what led him to become insane. Uh, Remember Mina talking about how she was afraid that Lucy wasn't going to be able to go through life without sorrow because of how super sensitive she was, right? Not saying that that you know it's like the one like a one way you know like a, a guaranteed ticket to to the asylum, but but anyway, I mean, so which came first, right? His insanity or his sensitivity? Could be either way, right? Um, though it seems that, and I mean, again, the nature of his insanity being so closely parallel to Dracula, it's you know so that even he himself characterizes his previous zoophagous career as worshiping dracula long and a fall off right um uh, so anyway okay so i think that but but again this clearly shows so if, i mean if we wondered like is dracula communicating with him in some way no 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 yeah pa- uh, uh, patrick i think that's exactly right patrick somers says he's more of a, a a celebrity stalker uh of dracula copying his methods and acting like dracula is his boss yeah yeah exactly um and penny you're absolutely right Dracula is boyar. He would not acquaint peasants with his plans. Absolutely not. Uh, remember, he works not quite solo. He's willing to command, right? But yeah, he's not gonna. He's not gonna be scheming with uh, really anybody. Certainly not somebody like Renfield. Um, so um, anyway, okay. Um, so I, I just, I, this is this is a passage I think people often overlook when they're thinking, like, but Renfield and Dracula must have been connected. Nah, definitely not. Um, Karita asks, is Renfield a peasant? We don't really know who he is um, or exactly what his social background is. He seems to be a quite intelligent and highly educated man. Um, we haven't learned that yet, but we'll see evidence of that later on. Um, so I don't really know uh, exactly there. Um but I bet Dracula would consider him a peasant, uh, since he's not boyar. Remember, <laughs> remember the jokes we were making about Jonathan Harker, right? I, I, the jokes we we're making at Jonathan Harker's expense, really, right? Um, about uh, you know aristocracy and and uh, and uh, you know how they do things in foreign countries and everything. Eh, quite likely, I, I would rather expect Dracula to share the same biases in reverse. Anyway, um, let's. Uh, Let's now shift. So we'll leave Renfield behind again for a bit. We'll, we'll be back with our friend Renfield. But instead, let's... Uh, well, no. One other thing I want to talk about briefly before we get to the central theme of tonight's class, which is the uh, strangeness and closed-mindedness and open-mindedness. Um, I want... Um, let me say, let me premise, this next subject, um, by saying right up front, I don't understand this. If any of you can explain this to me, I would be delighted to learn. This is a part of this story which has remained opaque to me, no matter how many, I have read this book literally dozens of times, and I still don't understand this stuff, okay? So, if you can help me, I'd be grateful. But, um, What I'm talking about are the hints that Van Helsing makes about Lucy's fate, and through that to sort of how the vampiric state in general works. Remember that passage we looked at last time? Um, where Lucy was dying, and like when she was asleep, she was all like pushing the garlic away. And when she wakes up, then she pulls it towards her. Right? the sort of the two Lucy's, right? The good Lucy and the vampire Lucy, sort of warring with each other. So it made a kind of sense when Van Helsing said in that passage we were looking at, he says, It will make much difference, mark me, whether she die awake or in her sleep, right? And okay, like, yes, I can see that, you know, it's it's clear that she's in a different state, but, but the question of what difference exactly would it make? I don't know. I said last time, I don't know the answer to that question, right? I, I mean, it's clearly the implication that he may I mean, the only way I can understand his statement is that he must be suggesting that there's more than a More than two options here, right? That is, this is not just a binary question. It's not just like if she dies while she's awake, then she'll she dies as Good Lucy, then she'll stay dead as Good Lucy, right? And she'll just be a normal corpse, and all will be well. Whereas if she dies while she's asleep, in trance state, and in like you know, uh, 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 not pseudo vampire, um, 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 sort of pre vampire state, right? Then she'll become a vampire, right? Then she'll then she'll rise again as the undead. I, it's more than just is she going to be a vampire or not a vampire? I mean, I think it's pretty clear she's going to be a vampire, right? I mean, there's, I don't I don't think whether she's awake or asleep is going to change whether or not she becomes a vampire at this stage. Therefore, I think that there must be something else that he's referring to here, right? Um, some other shade of distinction, some other, some other, um, some more subtle category. Um, but he doesn't explain. It's a problem with all these passages through this whole section. This is still when Van Helsing is being all cryptic, right? And he's saying that he doesn't want to say everything that he thinks, right? Um, and so therefore, so many of the things that he says are never really explained to us. Right? But let me... Um, rather than clearing up this conclusion, let me uh, let me add to this conclusion. Several of you are pointing this, uh, the passages that I'm just about to bring up because I want to kind of put all of our data uh, in the pot here, and then we'll see what, what if anything, we can uh, we can make of it. This is when he initially says, right on the, the, the after right after she dies, that before the funeral, after so like after the viewing and before the funeral. Uh, they're going to come in and they're going to the, bring the post-mortem knives, right? and they're going to cut off her head, and they're going uh, to cut out her heart, and they're going to stuff her mouth with garlic, and they're going to put her back in the coffin, like everything's fine. right? That's his plan. And he lays the crucifix, the little gold crucifix, on her lips, and then leaves her for the night. And he comes back, and Dr. Seward is surprised at this response. You need not trouble about the knives. We shall not do it. Why not, I asked, for his solemnity of the night before had greatly impressed me. Because, he said sternly, it is too late or too early. See, here he held up the little golden crucifix. This was stolen in the night. How stolen, I asked in wonder, since you have it now? Because I get it back from the worthless wretch who stole it, from the woman who robbed the dead and the living. Her punishment will surely come, but not through me. She knew not altogether what she did, and thus, unknowing, she only stole. Now we must wait. Why? Why? Why must they wait? I still don't understand. I really, I really, I really don't don't understand. So, he put the crucifix on it. Now, we know the crucifix to be a vampire-inhibiting thing, right? We saw this with Dracula... Way back in with Jonathan Harker in the shaving incident, right? And remember, it didn't just like repel him, it didn't drive him out of the room or anything. When his hand, he went to seize Jonathan because like he saw the blood trickling down his chin, you know, and, and he got all like, you know, spastically hungry, right? And started lunging at him. His face transformed in demoniac fury, but his hand brushed against the crucifix around his neck against the, the rosary beads on his neck and he immediately has changed right his, his his whole affect immediately changes and he becomes normal such that Jonathan was like was I imagining that right he he, 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 he can't even be sure that it really happened right okay so given given that um, The crucifix has that effect on Dracula. One question, then, to be asked about this scene is, what effect was Van Helsing going for? Was he putting the crucifix on her lips in order to prevent her leaving the coffin for fear lest she get up and walk around that night? Right? That seems conceivable. I doubt it, though. Uh, And the reason I doubt that is, I doubt that that's what Van Helsing was expecting. And the reason I doubt that that's what he's expecting is that, remember, his reaction upon seeing the bloofer lady headlines in the newspaper is, Mein Gott, mein Gott, so soon, so soon, he's a little surprised that she's up and about and biting kids already, right? So that leads me to suspect that he was not expecting her to get up and walk around that first night. What then? And why on her lips specifically why not her forehead or her heart when I why not put it around her throat, right? Instead he, he, he lays it on her lips. Was he attempting to prevent some influence to her? Is this some is is he is he holding something inside her? Is he keeping something out of her? I don't know. I don't really understand. Um, uh, Mick exactly Mick says the spirit leaves via the mouth, yes, that is an old tradition, um, delightfully illustrated in some medieval manuscript illuminations, my favorite. It's one of my favorite manuscript illuminations of all time. Um, it's of the Dormition of the Virgin, that is the Virgin Mary on her deathbed. The Ascension of the Virgin without dying, the, the, the Ascension straight to heaven of the Virgin Mary, is a modern doctrine. It's not a medieval doctrine. In the Middle Ages, they believe that old, that, that the Virgin Mary died of old age. So this picture of the of the, what's called the Dormition of the Virgin when she's when she's going to sleep, when she's dying. And so you see the Virgin Mary as an old woman lying there, and she's kind of like, right, she's dying. And they show, they depict her soul, um, which is like this little, like, Casper the Friendly Ghost outline that's emerging from her mouth. Um, And it's so adorable. It looks kind of like a baby or a toddler, and it's so happy. It's like sticking its arms out. It's like, yay, as it comes out of her mouth. It's just so cute. Anyway, um, uh, so, um, uh, yes, so Mick, it is an old idea that the soul emerges from the mouth. It's that, but again, is it so is it like is he trying to keep the good Lucy in? Is he trying to prev- to keep a bad Lucy out or I, I don't know. I I am I'm, I'm totally not following Caritas is he keeping her human as long as possible. Maybe. Um uh uh Yeah, yeah. Um is he um <laughs> Morgan is wondering if he's bluffing and acting like he understands more than he does. Well Morgan, he does confess that he's kind of like feeling his way and sort of guessing at times. He doesn't know everything. Um, but this is past the point where he's totally guessing. But what he does say is that he's not going to explain it, right? Um, so, yeah, and Nancy, it's possible that he could just have been wrong. Uh, it, it, it is, it is con- but again, we, don't, we don't even have, have any way to assess whether or not he's right or wrong. So, Okay, so what was he trying to do? I'm not sure, but since the crucifix was stolen, whatever he was trying to do apparently didn't happen, and that for some reason makes it a bad idea to cut off her head and cut out her heart on this night the way that they were planning to do it, right? So, um, and again, why? I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't understand. But again, what becomes clear, what becomes clear is that he. This is not just a like, is she going to turn into a vampire or not? There's something like, like so. It, the crucifix on her lips... Uh, assuming he's not wrong, maybe he's wrong, but assuming he's not wrong, the crucifix on her lips would have been efficacious to bring about some good end, which would have been linked causally to it's being a good idea to to, to axe her body, you know, to cut out her heart and, and cut off her head. Um, whereas... Since that didn't happen, that would be bad. But I don't understand it well enough to really understand what cause, what that cause is. Here's another reference. This is in his conversation with Arthur, which, from a macabre standpoint, is completely hilarious. It's one of my, is fi- one of the parts of the book that makes me laugh out loud every single time I read it. Um, uh, <laughs> The method by which Van Helsing breaks the whole undead thing to Arthur is just so hilarious. Um, But anyway, okay. Um, He says at one point during that for Arthur, very painful conversation, and to me very funny conversation. If I could spare you one pang, my poor friend, he said, God knows I would. I think (laughs) He just be a little bit more creative about how he might possibly spare Arthur Pangs. But anyway. But this night our feet must tread in thorny paths, or later and forever the feet you love must walk in paths of flame. Um, Okay. Uh, The implication here is that there is an eternal consequence. It's not a question of whether or not she's going to... Remember, this is much later. This is the very end of chapter 15, the, the very end of today's reading. Um, so he, he he's the blue for lady stuff is, is already in full swing. He's already seen her walking, right? I mean, he knows that she is a vampire. So there's no question of maybe she will, maybe she won't be a vampire, right? But he does say... So, so we have him suggesting, not explaining really, but hinting at... One possible distinction, that is, the ultimate fate of her eternal soul, it sounds like he's talking about whether when we destroy her body and set her free from this sort of enslavement as a vampire that she is currently in, um, where will her soul go? Will her her soul still be free to go to heaven, or will she go to hell, walking in paths of flame later and forever? That seems to be what he's saying, right? Um... So, yeah. So, so, Nick, exactly. He seemed to be talking about saving her soul. Was that um, was that what was at stake with the crucifix thing on that first night, too? Um, had she had the crucifix on her lips, would that have somehow kept her pure in a way that killing her right away, you know, or, you know, decapitating her right away, um, would have, uh, would have, like, insured whereas in, since she didn't have the crucifixion now it, the the crucifix now it's dodgy I don't know it doesn't seem so as anyway um, but um, but uh, yeah karita he does suggest they have to stop her before she actually kills someone we'll get to that a little bit more next time when he talks about that then finally a little bit more uh, a little bit more explicitly but um, anyway uh, like I said so, I, enough with these passages, because like I said, I don't understand them, but um, uh, we'll see, maybe we can find some more evidence to try to understand this a little bit more later as we go, but I wanted to kind of put them forward. We it mentioned it last time, I didn't want didn't to look like I'm trying to hide them, um, uh, and uh, anyway, there it is. We'll, let's keep looking and see if maybe we can come to a better understanding together uh, as we move along. Now, I want to move to talking about the strangeness of it all, right? uh, talking about this fight between open-mindedness and closed-mindedness, which really takes center stage. It's been hinted at from the very beginning, right, like the epigram at the beginning of the book. Um, the epigraph, rather, not an epigram. Uh, the the epigraph at the beginning of the book, um, when, uh, you know, we talk about the things, uh, you know, an, an account almost at variance with the possibilities of later-day belief, right? Um Warned about that from the very beginning, and we see it really take center stage in today's reading. Um, Comment about the general strangeness of things. I have said before, earlier on, that, you know, in earlier sessions, that we have to get ourselves out of the modern point of view where, you know, vampires and the undead are totally mainstream and something we're all thinking about, um, and therefore... You know, the whole thing just seems so obvious to us. And I've been saying we've got to go back to imagine ourselves in a time where it's just unknown and, and, uh, and, and totally not mainstream, uh, such that people would be, um, you know, sort of right along with Dr. Seward and, you know, chapters one through three, Jonathan Harker and everything, um, in their ignorance and their uh, even sort of resistance to this really weird idea of The Walking Dead. Um, I've gotten uh, several emails uh, about this from people who have, you know, sort of been trying to argue about how, no, it really wasn't that as unknown and that vampirism is totally well known. Um, I know. I know that John Polidori wrote The Vampire in the early 19th century and that it was a fairly popular book. I know that it was a thing that comes up at times, like in Byron's works and, and other places. I know there are references to it. I know that the legends of vampires had been around forever, and that people had believed in vampires for a really long time. but if you read it's, I know those things, and I acknowledge those things, but if you read this story carefully, it is obvious that these things are not mainstream it 's not just that this is a story about a set of people who happen to be ignorant about this stuff right that like had uh, you know had had dr seward 's reading happened to include John Polidori and Lord Byron. That he would have had a whole new, you know, outlook on this whole thing. It is clearly not the case. Um, the whole, the way this whole story works hinges upon the idea of the absolute alienness of these ideas. Um, I don't think there is any way that Bram Stoker, when writing this book. Sort of assumes, because again, it's conceivable that an author, could, like for instance, a modern author could write a book like this, right? Could write a book about some people who were totally ignorant about vampires, while the author knew that the readers would know all about it, right? And that that gap between the knowledge of the readers and the knowledge of the characters could be part of the, you know, sort of the irony that the author was working with, right? That can be a tool to make the story work. That could happen, right? That totally could happen. I am one hundred percent convinced that is not what is happening in this book. He is not Bram Stoker is does not believe that his readers know all about you know know about this or even really that it's a familiar thing to them at all, and that they're going to be kind of you know uh, you know that, that he's sort of exploiting the gap between his reader's knowledge, his reader's familiarity with this compared to his character's ignorance of it. I don't believe that for even one second. When you read this, he assumes every, to, to everything in everyone. The entire narrative hinges upon the fact that people have no idea um, what's going on. Remember that. First of all, those widespread vampire legends. Who tells vampire legends like that? Peasants tell vampire legends like that. Well-bred and well-educated Englishmen of the 19th century don't tell or believe stories like that. Remember, that's the very first cue that we get in Chapter 1 from Jonathan, right? There's these things that these suspicious peasants... You know, there are these superstitions all over the place here, right? And isn't that quaint? As I, the sophisticated, intelligent, and well-educated first-world Englishman, uh, come here among these... Uh, ignorant peasants and observe from afar their curious superstitions, right? Um, hoping to talk about them uh, and gain some insight uh, from one of the local aristocracy, who doubtless is also sophisticated. Um, Yes, Nick, they're even referred to as peasant superstitions. So the fact that vampirism is known, this is going to come up. Van Helsing is going to explain this. He's going to say, Everybody has always known about vampirism. These legends are everywhere, but where they aren't is in the mainstream, in the well-educated, intelligent, sophisticated nineteenth-century English world, and it's and that's his audience, that Stoker's audience, right? Um, so one of the things Van Helsing asks Doctor Seward when he. Uh, does that long setup in order to finally say that the bites on the children's throats were made by Miss Lucy, right? And then Jonathan, or er, er, John Seward gets really upset, right? Van Helsing asks him, he says, why do you think I took so long to tell you so simple a thing, right? Why do you think I built that up so long in the way that I did? And I think that that question is sort of a question that kind of resonates, right? Why does he go to all of these elaborate lengths? Why does Stoker, I mean, why does Stoker set up this story in the way that he does? Because he too, like Van Helsing, was attempting to kind of work with Dr. Seward's skepticism, acknowledging his skepticism, and trying to bring him around to a place where he'd be open-minded enough to receive this concept. We see, I think, we can clearly see Stoker doing the same thing with uh, uh, with his... English audience um, uh, yeah yeah uh, anyway let's um, let's look at some examples of what I'm talking about consider consider this this passage when thinking about this issue of uh, um, how off the beaten path we are in this story this is again <laughs> my, my favorite passage of that conversation with Arthur. Miss Lucy is dead. Is it not so? Yes. Then there can be no wrong to her. But if she be not dead, Arthur jumped to his feet. Good God, he cried. What do you mean? Has there been any mistake? Has she been buried alive? He groaned in anguish that not even hope could could soften. I did not say she was alive, my child. I did not think it. I go no further than to say that she might be undead. Undead? Not alive? What do you mean? Is this all a nightmare, or what is it? There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. Believe me, we are now on the verge of one, but I have not done. May I cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy? Um... Just absolutely, <laughs> just absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I, I, just, I can't, I can't. I know it's sad, and we should be sad for Arthur. And like, this is a really hard time for Arthur. His dad's just died, and his fiance just died, and now this crazy coot is talking about opening her grave and cutting off her head. It's really bad. Um, but um, Van Helsing, uh, <laughs> I, got, I, I just I, I can I, I can't not laugh. And he says, "I go no further than to say that she might be undead, as if it's like a compromise, right? No, 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 it's okay. All I'm saying is that she might be undead. My, my point, however, is, um, uh, uh, she's yeah. Notice, guys, she's not saying he's not saying she's mostly dead, right? And therefore slightly alive. No, 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 no. He doesn't think that. Um, uh." <laughs> the The thing that I really want to, apart from the fact that I can't resist this passage because this is just like Van Helsing at his clueless best, he is kind of clueless about interpersonal matters at various points, and this is he never gets worse in interpersonal matters there's There's a bigger gaff that he makes later in the book, but it's not it's not it's not anything like as 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 sort of odd and funny as this one is. Um, may I cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy? Even that phrase, may I cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy? Um, dead Miss Lucy, what a, uh, uh, just that, that phrase by itself. Anyhow, um, uh, but the thing I really want to emphasize here is Arthur's response. Undead? Not alive? What do you mean? Is this all a nightmare or what is it? Arthur doesn't have categories for this. He, like, completely doesn't understand what Van Helsing is even talking about. And what I would emphasize, again, is... Notice, his resistance, his response to this is of a different kind than would be the resistance of someone who was familiar with vampire stories and just thought that they weren't true, right? Um, this is He's not having the reaction of somebody who says... I've read stories about this, but they're just stories, and it's not real. It's not what he says. That's not how Arthur reacts, right? Arthur reacts by saying, is this some kind of nightmare, or what is it? Like, my mind is completely blown by now. You said she's not alive, but you said she's not dead. You said she might be undead. The heck does that even mean, right? So, um, I, I, again, imagine, So this is why I say I really do think we need to put ourselves back in a time where the word undead strikes us as like an alien neologism, right? Like he, like Van Helsing has just put that weird, that prefix onto that word, that familiar word, dead, right? And created this wacky combination that doesn't even make sense uh, to, to... doesn't make sense to Arthur. And I don't think, again... Nothing in this passage leads me to to believe that Bram Stoker is assuming that the audience is sitting there, kind of chuckling at Arthur. I'm chuckling at Ben Helsing. I'm not chuckling at Arthur, right? Um, You know, like, oh, Arthur's so ignorant, right? Of course, we all know about the undead. They don't know about the undead. If everybody, if all the, if the readers all knew about the undead, this whole thing, um, this whole thing wouldn't uh, wouldn't work. Um. Yeah, interesting. James Pay says that uh, Merriam-Webster lists the first known use of "undead" as the same year uh, that Dracula came out. Um, I do suspect that Bram Stoker made up this word. Uh, Notice how it's hyphenated, right? It's not even just like a word, right? It's un dead, right? This is a this is this is this is a new concept. Okay, Um, so anyway, okay. And Penny asked a really good question. Nick was asking a similar thing. Is Undead simply an example of Van Helsing's poor English? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, is it what we get when we have somebody who's not, you know, completely fluent in the language, groping to try to point to the concept, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Yeah, see, Mick, it can't be 1904, because this book was published in 1897, so here we're staring at an instance uh, of the use of that word in 1897. So, Um, anyway. Uh, Yeah, Carrie, I I absolutely agree. Um, My every reading of this book suggests that Stoker is expecting to have, to his readers, to have the same response to these words as Arthur. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Um, Right, yeah, yeah, Mick. That's, that's what that's what I thought you were you were pointing to there. So, okay. Given the strangeness, right? Van Helsing gets the strangeness, right? He doesn't handle it well with Arthur. <laughs> his uh, his concept of breaking Arthur in gently is a little odd, um, but um, but we see when his dealings with Doctor Seward, he totally gets the fact that. Dr. Seward is going to have a hard time understanding this. He's quite sympathetic to that issue, right? Um, We see in the long speech that he makes here, Friend John, I pity your poor bleeding heart, and I love you the more because it does so bleed. If I could, I would take on myself the burden that you do bear. But there are things that you know not, but that you shall know, and bless me for knowing, though they are not pleasant things. John, my child, you have been my friend now many years, and yet did you ever know me to do any without good cause? I may err, I am but man, but I believe in all I do. Was it not for these causes that you send for me when the great trouble came? Yes! Were you not amazed, nay horrified, when I would not let Arthur kiss his love, though she was dying, and snatched him away by all my strength? Yes! And yet you saw how she thanked me, And with her so beautiful dying eyes, her voice too so weak, and she kiss my ruffled hand and bless me? Yes. And did you not hear me swear promise to her that so she closed her eyes grateful? Yes. Well, I have good reason now for all I want to do. You have for many years trust me. You have believed me weeks past when there be things so strange that you might have well doubt. Believe me yet a little, friend John. If you trust me not then I must tell what I think, and that is not perhaps well. And if I work, as work I shall, no matter trust or no trust, without my friend trust in me, I work with heavy heart, and feel oh so lonely when I want all help and courage that may be. He paused a moment and went on solemnly. Friend John, there are strange and terrible days before us. Let us not be two but one, that so we work to a good end. Will you not have faith in me? Now remember this is um uh um didn't you so okay this is i believe when he's when he first proposes to c- cut off her head and uh, cut out her heart you know with the autopsy knives right um um notice the substance of his appeal right um he asks Seward to trust him personally. He acknowledges how hard it is, how strange all these things have been. But notice the two things that he does here. First, he—it's it's a personal appeal. Will you not have faith in me? Do you have any reason to—you know—you have reason to trust me, right? You know that I don't act arbitrarily. You know that I don't act unless I have good—I might be wrong, but I always—I always have good cause for what I do. If you believe, you know, so if you trust my intellect, if you trust my integrity, then I ask you to go along with me, even though it might be hard, right? That's one thing that he asks him. But notice also, at the same time, he is also giving evidence, right? You know, he, he when he goes here in this first paragraph, when he's going over how difficult it is, you know, when he's acknowledging the difficulty of understanding all this, he points out... Oh, he says okay so first was it not for these causes that you send for me when the great trouble came right okay so you obviously I know that you believe in me right that you have faith in me you, you have respect for me and you believe in me okay with that as a given right he acknowledges you were amazed and horrified when I wouldn't let Arthur kiss his love right and snatched him away by all my strength that mystified you right. But you also noticed that she thanked me for it. Um, and that she made me spr- swear a promise to her. And that she closed her eyes grateful when I did. Right? That is to say, Dr. Seward, you know you didn't understand what was going on. And I know you didn't understand what was going on there. But can't you see that Lucy understood? And that I understood? Right? What I did might have seemed random, but it wasn't random. And it wasn't strange. Lucy understood it. Right, even if you don't yet, right? Um, but he starts off with that personal appeal, right? He, knowing that he's got to begin there, he 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 seems to he has no faith. Van Helsing has no faith that he can just convince Doctor Seward without Doctor Seward's personal trust in him, right? But let's go back a bit, looking at this sort of the closed-mindedness of. Dr. Seward. And really, I think pretty clearly, Dr. Seward is kind of representative of the modern world, right? Dr. Seward is like the spokesperson for the 19th century English educated, sophisticated point of view, right? Uh, In this whole section. Jumping back a ways. um, The first time that the scarf, the little like silk scarf that Lucy wore around her throat slips down and they see the puncture wounds on her throat, um, after, I think, the second time, she's, like, completely prostrated by blood loss? "'What do you make of that mark on her throat?' Van Helsing asks. "'No, sorry. Seward asks Van Helsing that. "'What do you make of it?' said Van Helsing. "'I have not examined it yet,' I answered, "'and then and there proceeded to loose the band. "'Just over the external juggler vein there were two punctures, "'not large, but not wholesome-looking. "'There was no sign of disease.' but the edges were white and worn-looking, as if by some treacheration. It had once occurred to me that this wound, or whatever it was, might be the means of that manifest loss of blood. But I abandoned the idea as soon as formed, for such a thing could not be. The whole bed would have been drenched to a scarlet with the blood which the girl must have lost to leave such a pallor as she had before the transfusion. She had a remarkable loss of blood, right? She has lost blood somewhere. How? Where? Right? This is sort of the big diagnostic question, right? And we see the wounds in her throat. They see the wounds in her throat. And he immediately comes to the perfectly logical conclusion. Wait a second. Wounds, these are the only wounds they found. Remember, they—they—they—they—they they, 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 they have no idea what the cause is or what the disease is, right? At least Dr. Seward doesn't. Um, you know, she she doesn't have any of the usual anemic signs, right? That she 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 doesn't just have anemia, but she is manifesting a loss of blood. So where is it? Where is it going, right? And here's this, these wounds, where the blood could escape, right? It's right next to the jugular vein. That's a big vein, right? It's not an artery, but it's a big vein um, where you can lose a lot of blood. Um, But he abandons the idea as soon as it's formed. Why? Well, because if the blood were leaking out those wounds, it'd be everywhere. I mean, she lost like pints of blood, right? Um, So it'd be all over the bed, since there's no blood on the bed, it can't have emerged from that wound. Obviously, it can't. They can't have done so, right? But of course, there is a further logical statement: unless it was taken out by someone or something, right? But Doctor Seward is resistant to that. Uh, uh, his mind seems to sort of shudder back from the logical conclusion there, right? Um, yeah, Nick, you're right. He does lose sight of the question, um, you know, because of a new calamity. You're right, Ben Helsing hasn't forgotten. This, of course, comes up again um, when that noted medical investigator, Quincy P. Morris, brings up the same thing. I'm sorry, did I have the slide advance there? Or did I advance it backwards somehow? Sorry about that. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, so Quincy is asking him, how long has this been going on? About ten days. Ten days? can't really do a good Texas accent either. Then I guess, Jack Seward, that that poor pretty creature that we all love has had put into her veins within that time the blood of four strong men. Man alive, her whole body wouldn't hold it. Then coming close to me, he spoke in a fierce half-whisper. What? Took it out? I shook my head. That, I said, is the crux. Van Helsing is simply frantic about it, and I am at my wits' end. I can't even hazard a guess. Quincy, uh, Quincy asks the right question, right? This is, and, and, and notice one of the things that this points out. You don't have to be a doctor to ask this question, right? This is the obvious question to be asked. I would go even further than that, right? If you're not asking this question about Lucy's condition, if you know what has been happening, if you know about the blood transfusions, and you know about her incredible power and pallor and lack of blood, this question screams itself, such that even the medically amateur, uh, though highly intelligent and completely awesome and full of, robust manhood, Quincy Morris um, uh, asks exactly the right question. It is the obvious question. Um, And when Quincy brings this up, it makes it even more conspicuous that Dr. Seward has not been asking this question. He asked it before when they discovered the wounds, but he's not even asked it since then. And it's true that, um, uh, it's true that, uh, uh, you know, lots of crises have kept coming up, and so, you know, kind of, they, they, you know, he's been so busy dealing with the symptoms that he hasn't really had time to think more about it. Mm, yeah, um, uh, but if you're the doctor you're thinking about the causes right um, now of course of course as you all remember Quincy also comes pretty close to I think it's kind of funny that I call many of the characters by their last names but I was but I call the American by his first name I guess, he's I, guess I call Jonathan by her his first name and mean it but um, anyway I Quincy talks about the bats right he tells a story about he had a mare who was uh, uh, taking that drain of blood uh, you know when a when a when a vampire bat uh, opened its vein and left the vein open and it bled to death um, we see he's closer right quite close in fact since we know that it's been primarily in bat form that dracula has been taking her blood um, but um, but notice also how the assumption that he makes about Van Helsing, right? Notice how Dr. Seward seems seems to me quite likely that he really believes that Van Helsing is simply frantic about it. Van Helsing has no idea. I don't have any idea. Neither does neither does Van Helsing, right? Uh, yes, he does. Yeah, yeah, no, he does. Why do you think he ordered the garlic? He knows. He's figured it out, right? Um... But it's almost like Dr. Seward is giving him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, maybe he's just kind of fooling himself to kind of boost his own ego. I don't know. But, uh, but that I, I always find that, uh, that reference really interesting. Um, more. Um, look at how... Look at where Dr. Seward's mind goes when he's confronted with the genuinely strange. So we've got the unexplained, right, that he can't figure out. Um, But I can tell you, that's kind of normal. That is, that's kind of realistic. That is, when a doctor has a patient where something's going wrong and they don't really know, that happens. It happens kind of a lot, actually, when you're just like, this is really weird. I have no idea why it's acting this way. Um, If you're a doctor, that's normal. I mean, or at least it's not uncommon. Um, So, okay, like, maybe, but look at what happens. Look at what Dr. Seward, um, and yeah, Tom, you're right. Crux is a fun word to choose here. It is the crux, isn't it, so to speak. Um, Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look at where Dr. Seward's mind goes when confronted with the strange. This is Lucy's memorandum, right, um, about her last conscious night. Uh, you know, the, the the wolf evening. When I had read it, I stood looking at the professor, and after a pause asked him, In God's name, what does it all mean? Was she, or is she mad? Or what sort of horrible danger is it? I was so bewildered that I did not know what to say more. Then Helsing put out his hand and took the paper, saying, Do not trouble about it now. Forget it for the present. You shall know and understand it all in good time. But it will be later. And now... What, it, what is it that you came to me to say? This brought me back to fact, and I was all myself again. I love that. This brought me back to fact. and I, I, so Back to facts, I'm fine, right? Um, he reads Lucy's account of what happened. And notice he has two thoughts, right? One, madness. Thought number one, right? Now, I, one of you, I forget who it was, earlier on said, when you're a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Right? He is an asylum... Uh, he is the the lunatic asylum man, right? So the fact that he goes around suspecting people of madness might seem perhaps uh, uh, not, not surprising under the circumstances. Um, but I think there's more to it than that. Right? I mean, yes. Th- that might be a factor. Um, but, um... Remember, Jonathan talked that way, too. About himself. Right? Um, he was very concerned about madness. Um there are sort of two reactions, it seems. One, any account or, you know, anything that's sort of out of the usual in in, 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 in those ways, that's um, mistaken. Like a peasant superstitions. it's not real, right? Um, if there's reason not to simply dismiss it... Um, and there is reason not to dismiss Lucy's memorandum. Notice how it fits with all the evidence that they found. Um, it describes how... I mean, remember they came into the house and they find the maids all lying there drugged with an empty bottle of laudanum next to the sherry flask, right? And then they go in and they find Mrs. Westenra and, you know, laid out on the bed and Lucy there. Um, in other words, all the, the entire house as they find it fits exactly what Lucy describes. So... He does not dismiss it by saying like, "Well, Lucy was just imagining things, right?" Or Lucy's a silly girl, right? He doesn't. He doesn't go there. Clearly, she believed it. There's some. It fits to some extent with what they've actually seen, right? So he, um, his, 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 his go-to response just says Jonathan's. You know, he went from peasant peasant superstition to madness, right? that's the sort of the plan B. If, it, it can't be real. Right? It can't just be real in cold fact. Um, I'm probably crazy or she's crazy. Whoever said it is probably crazy. Right? That's the logical second second choice. But notice there is a little crack, right? He does suggest a plan C. Right? Plan A would be it's all a mistake or a hoax or it's not real. Plan B is madness, right? She believes it. Maybe she even made some of it maybe she drugged the maids herself right in some pursuing some insane idea you know but there is a, an option C an option C is what sort of horrible danger is it exactly Jennifer which is pointing to that too or there might be some horrible danger right This is one of the only moments where we see Dr. Seward being um, a little very little bit open-minded about the possibility that something actually weird is going on here. Um, But certainly after her death, he drops it, right? Um, He drops it. Now, oh, um... Nick Morato asked, "Was her bedroom on the first or second floor? I, I believe it was on the ground floor. That's why the wolf was able to. It would have been a uh, uh, one great leap for a vampire, a mighty leap. Uh, you know, uh, one small step for a vampire, a mighty leap for a wolf uh, from the ground to uh, um, to jump through the window of a second story window. I, I don't, or first story in British terms. Um, I, don't, I don't. I don't think so. I think she's has, has a ground level bedroom. Why didn't they see it? Because they didn't they." I don't know exactly, um, uh, but they—I mean—they were trying the front door, and then they just cut their way in through a window. Did they go all the way around the house? I'm not really sure. Um, but um, yeah, her room in Whitby was on the second floor. So we're doing oh, wait. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um... And this is... One of the... I, I feel... A, I feel on weak ground here. This is exactly the kind of thing that somebody writing in 1897 would be writing to... Like, things that they would assume... The things they wouldn't explain that they would take for granted that we at this remove don't necessarily understand. Um... Uh, it's possible, of course, that Bram Stoker is screwed up. Because you're right. You're right, James. They do talk about going downstairs from her room. Yeah. Um, yes. Yes, you're right. You're right. Which leaves us with two options. Option one, Bram Stoker just messed up. And, like, imagine the wolf leaping up, to, you know, this impossible leap from the ground. Which... Is inconsistent even with how wolves act in the rest of uh, in in the rest of the book. So I can't imagine he's actually thinking that. Or there's some other way in which this could happen uh, that would make sense if you were familiar with how houses were laid out then. Is there some kind of access external access that the wolf could have gotten to some? Kind? I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the houses were set up. I don't know, like some, like, a balcony or something? I don't know. Um, it seems to me possible that there's some architectural feature here that would have been exactly Thomas, uh, Thomas, like a balcony with stairs. Um, uh, yes, it is possible that the going downstairs was to the downstairs servants' quarters, which was usually below ground. Um, That's where, remember, uh, Thomas Builder, the zookeeper, refers to this uh, when he says that, uh, he he, when he's speculating about what could have happened to Berserker and where he is, um, is that he could have gotten down into some area, um, which is, again, it's, it's one of those things that I'm talking about, about the kind of assumptions, not explaining something that would have been totally everyday life for them, but might be peculiar from a 21st century perspective. The area means that, like the sunken stairs, so you've got like a Right, like the stairs go down to the to the downstairs entrance where the servants go in and out from the street, um, and the area is the, the the recessed pit in the ground that you have to descend down the stairs to. Um, so if he falls down and get in gets into some area, that's where uh, Thomas Builder suggests he might get into a coal cellar or something and uh, really startle, you know, a housekeeper who goes down or a cook who goes down there. Um, so. Um, so it's possible that, uh, the downstairs means to the subterranean downstairs to the servants, um, uh, level, and that Lucy's bedroom is both upstairs and on the ground floor. Um, it's, uh, it's possible. Um, anyway, anyway, I don't want to get too distracted with because I don't really know the answer to that either, um, but, um... To me, I just come back to the picture of the, um, of the wolf breaking the window, and I can't, um, I can't. It seems to me impossible that they're thinking of that happening on a second, uh, a second, story window. Yeah, I know this has turned into an upstairs downstairs drama. Yeah, exactly. Um, Gerald Michael says why doesn't why does Dracula need a wolf to break the window why doesn't he just throw a rock remember that the effect of the garlic is not just physical it's not just that it physically bars his entry it protected Lucy psychically from his influence he could not uh, influence her mind he tried to call her and command her and she didn't she had a wall between them she didn't hear him um or heard him only faintly and didn't have to obey so there se- it seems to be a more absolute barrier than mere physical necessity no dracula is not the wolf berserker is the wolf um the escape wolf from the zoo remember when he comes back to the zoo he's got broken glass uh on his head um and the, you know thomas builder's like see this is why i'm always saying that people shouldn't put broken bottles on top of the wa-. some people put broken bottles on top of their walls to keep people from climbing over right um you know kind of like it's like the poor man's barbed wire fence right um plus well i was going to say more classy looking not really but less conspicuous from the ground anyway um so uh, uh that's what he that's where he assumes the broken glass came from but it's pretty clear that it came from Lucy Western's window um yeah yeah um so yeah carrie i agree the clear conclusion we i think have to come to here is that dracula couldn't do it on his own um he he clearly believes that he needed the wolf um yeah yeah exactly (laughs) mark Ingram says dracula wouldn't throw rocks peasants throw rocks right nobles summon wolves yeah maybe so maybe it's a class thing um yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to, back to Van Helsing. So, um, when Van Helsing is now trying to walk Dr. Seward through what he knows, right, um, and get him to acknowledge the strangeness of what's going on, do you mean to tell me, friend John, that you have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of, not after all the hints given, not only by events, but by me? of nervous prostration following on great loss or waste of blood. And how the blood lost or waste. I shook my head, right? Did you not ever even ask that question, right? Why doesn't he ask that question? Why was it that um, Dr. Seward became so uncurious, Even though this is not, he's He's a scientist. He likes to find things out, right? He's a physician. He likes to diagnose diseases. He, but yet, he was personally invested in Lucy, and yet his mind shrank back from this. Remember Mrs. Westonrow and her heart condition, right? Remember all those references to how it was almost like Mrs. Westonrow went out of her way to avoid shocks, um, right? That you know they. they Dr. Seward refers to the ease with which Mrs. Weston agreed to their stipulations, right? You know, when they're like, please don't mess with anything in Lucy's room, she's like, okay, won't do it, don't need to know why, right? And Dr. Seward says it was almost like nature itself, um, it's almost like nature itself was like, it was like a protective instinct, right? She knows that if she receives a shock, she'll die. And so her mind actually avoids shocking things until she goes into Lucy's room and uh, what turns out to be an unwise move. And uh, and yeah, Tomasa does turn out that a wolf breaking through the window is enough of a shock to kill her. But um, anyway, so but the point is that parallel, right? So we get that all that stuff about Mrs. Westenra's heart condition. Notice how Doctor Seward is acting in the same way, right? Um, he doesn't have a heart, a heart condition. He's not going to die if he has this shock. But there's that. It seems like that same kind of protective in Like his mind shudders back from the possibility. He does not want to think about it. It's like his mind is trying to protect itself, right? Um, I don't. I really. It, it's too much to acknowledge that. So he's going to act even out of character. Not even asking like, Ceasing to ask the question. Why, where, you know, why the blood loss, or how the blood loss or waste. Um, yeah, uh, Joel, I think he is afraid of the answer. Think back to the, the, the Discovering the Wounds passage that we looked at before. He knows. Think of Quincy's question. He knows the blood has been taken out somehow. It has gone, it has gone somewhere. As Van Helsing says, the blood was, but it is not. Right? Um, he knows this. And yet, he does not even pursue the line of questioning. Because it seems that he... Uh, um, uh, he <laughs> Nick and Carita are both making the same joke. He does have a hard condition with respect to Lucy. Yes, very good, very good. And that perhaps does also bias his judgment. Um, anyway, Van Helsing's response to the non-inquisitiveness of Dr. Seward. "'You are clever man, friend John. "'You reason well, and your wit is bold, "'but you are too prejudiced. "'You do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear, "'and that which is outside your daily life "'is not of account to you. "'Do you not think that there are things "'which you cannot understand, and yet which are? "'That some people see things that others cannot, "'but there are things old and new.'" Which must be, which must not be, contemplate by men's eyes, because they know or think they know some things which other men have told them. Ah, it is the fault of our science that it wants to explain all, and if it explain not, then it says there is nothing to explain. Okay, so again, okay, this—it's uh, uh, hard to sort of unravel Van Helsing's syntax here sometimes. Um, but there are things old and new which must not be contemplated by men's eyes because they know some things which other men have told them. Right? So, okay. If you accept certain premises, right? If you accept... So, people have said, you know, wise men and men of science have said there's no such thing as this. Right? You know, like, undead, for instance. Or, you know, these things are just peasant superstitions, uh, not... Uh, it's, it's not real. If you believe that, right? Um, if you believe these things that other men have told you, then there are going to be some things, some old things and some new things, which must not be contemplated by men's eyes, right? Things which you will avert your eyes from, things which you will actively not think about because you have made up your mind in advance that it cannot possibly be. And so your mind won't even register it, right? You won't even pay attention This is, and and Van Helsing connects this with science. It is the fault of our science, he says. That um, it wants to explain all, and if it explained not, then it says there's nothing to explain. He's not criticizing science, or saying that the the conclusions uh, drawn by science are questionable, but rather that the assumption that if a thing is not explicable by science, it therefore isn't real, that assumption he does very much uh, question right? Look at how he goes about, um, uh, look at how he goes about trying to open Jonathan's mind. Oh, wait. Sorry, sorry. No, not that, not not that yet. One more first. Um, that is, notice, it's not just the scientific mindset, right? This is not just Dr. Seward and the, uh, um, and his scientific training. Um, this is cultural, right? This is the newspaper, um, The uh, uh, oh, which one is it? Gazette. Is the Gazette? Uh, I'm forgetting what what the clipping is from, Um, but anyway. The neighborhood of Hempstead is just at present exercised with a series of events which seem to run on lines parallel to those of to those of what was known to the writers of headlines as the Kensington horror or the stabbing woman or the woman in black. During the past two or three several days, two or three days, several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or neglecting to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases the children were too young to give any properly intelligible account of themselves, but the consensus of, uh, of their excuses is that they had been with a blue-fur lady. Westminster Gazette. Thank you, James it has always been late in the evening when they have been missed and on two occasions the children have not been found until early in the following morning it is generally supposed in the neighbourhood that as the first child missed gave as his reason for being away that a bloofer lady had asked him to come for a walk the others had picked up the phrase and used it as occasion served this is the more natural, as the favorite game of the little ones at present is luring each other away by wiles. A correspondent writes us, to, writes us that to see some of the tiny tots pretending to be the fur Lady is supremely funny. Some of our caricaturists might, he says, take a lesson in the irony of the grotesque by comparing the reality with, and the picture. It is only in accordance with general principles of human nature that the fur Lady should be the popular role at these alfresco performances. Um, okay, the word bloofer. What does the word bloofer mean? Anybody know what the word bluefer means? Lee, yes, I believe so. This is Cockney for beautiful. It is the beautiful lady uh, that they are talking to. So this is. Notice the condescension even in the quotation of the children, right? Um, they didn't translate the accent of the Cockney kids. Who are saying "blue for lady," right? Um, they are—they're um, replicating the accent in the print "blue for lady," and you see the effect of that. Why would they do that? It is a young child's way of saying a, a difficult world, but it's a particular kind of young child's way of saying a difficult world. Poor children. It's a poor, cockney child. It's exactly, Carita, it is a peasant child's way of saying the word beautiful. Um, Exactly, Lee, it discounts their experience. Um, Just by, by quoting Bloofer, the newspaper is prompting their readers to dismiss the accounts of the children as... They are low-class, ignorant people, right? And notice how they do this. Notice that what they actually report could be construed as very interesting evidence that there is, in fact, something going on, right? Notice we have several independent accounts. Multiple different children have said that they went off to hang out with the bloofer lady, and that's why they didn't come home. Rather than saying... Gosh, isn't it suspicious that all these different kids are... are this, this this phenomenon is happening with a bunch of different kids and they all give the same account. Hmm, maybe there's something to that. No, 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 no. No, no there must be some other explanation of that, right? Because these are A, children, and B, low-class children. Um, they can't know what they're talking about. They're probably... It's just a game that they play. And notice, the fact that they are playing... They were playing Red Riding Hood before when the wolf thing was going on. Um... Now they're all playing Blue for Lady., um, and so the game that they're playing is this is the more natural that they all call it. Talk about the blue for Lady. This is more natural as the favorite game of the little ones at present is luring each other away by wiles. Why are they doing that? The fact that they're playing that game sh- again, is conceivably, perhaps evidence that there's something going... They know something that the adults don't know, right? Um, and yet, it is exactly... They're playing at monsters, right? Just as they were playing at Red Riding Hood before in The Big Bad Wolf, now they're playing at The for Lady, right? So not only do they understand, does their play show that they know The for Lady is out there and tempting kids away by wiles, they also recognize that she's a monster, like The Big, like the big Bad Wolf, right? And yet, we are not... Um, we're not going to uh, pay any attention to this. In fact, we're going to twist this around. Notice the preconceptions, the, the hard assertion of preconceptions here, right? Um, in, all, in all these cases, the children were too young to give any properly intelligible account. Uh, again, properly intelligible, also a bit, of a, a bit of classist snobbery contained in the properly intelligible crack, especially... Introducing the uh uh the Bloofer lady. But anyway, um it is generally supposed that so they haven't they have an explanation thought up, right? There's a there's a rational explanation for this. The first child said it, and then everyone else is just copying the first child, right? Um Yeah, exactly. Carrie says the adult understanding is that the children are playing at luring by wiles. The children might have a different experience. It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. Um, So anyway, my point here is just, this is a cultural thing. It's not just Dr. Seward, personally, and it's not just Dr. Seward's scientific outlook, though Van Helsing points to that as being a factor in Dr. Seward's case. This is a cultural thing. This is more like the kind of thing that we saw from Jonathan back in Chapter 1 in his attitude towards the peasants, right? Um, Okay, now, let's go about looking at... um, looking at how Van Helsing approaches trying to break through uh, Seward's preconceptions. "'Do you know all the mystery of life and death? Do you know the altogether of comparative anatomy, and can say wherefore the qualities of brutes are in some men and not in others?' Can you tell me why, when other spiders die small and soon, that one great spider lived for centuries in the tower of the old Spanish church and grew and grew till, on descending, he could drink the oil of all the church lamps? Can you tell me why in the Pampas, aye, and elsewhere, there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry their veins? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on the trees all day and those who have seen describe as like giant nuts or pods and that when the sailors sleep on the deck because that it is hot flit down on them and then-and then in the morning are found dead men white as even miss lucy was good god professor i said starting up do you mean to tell me that lucy was bitten by such a bat and that such a thing is here in london in the nineteenth century <laughs> That's, a, that's an interesting parallel, Sarah. I hadn't thought of that. Sarah Lagarde says he sounds like God speaking to Job uh, in the Old Testament. It does kind of sound like the end of Job, right? Um, you, know, uh, 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 you know, can you measure the, uh, the foundation of the universe with a measuring line, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it does sound like that, actually. That, that's it's a really interesting parallel. And indeed, there is kind of an active parallel, Sarah, right? Just as Job, just as God is saying to Job, in the end of the book of Job, <clears throat> you need to acknowledge that you don't know everything, right? Um, you're asking why I do these things, and why, as if you could understand them all, right? As if you were in a position to understand how everything works and why everything happens the way that it does, right? But that's a fallacy, right? You're not God, you don't understand all these things. That's God's message, right, at the end of Job. That's kind of like Van Helsing's message to, to Dr. Seward at the beginning there, right? Do you know all the mysteries of life and death? Um, as, a, as a doctor, right, as a scientist, you should acknowledge that you don't know all the mysteries, that there are still many mysteries that we do not yet understand, right? Um, and then he tells these stories about... Yeah, notice how he's not only listing, as Dr. Seward will say later, nature's eccentricities, which notice Dr. Seward doesn't fight. Right? He doesn't say, those things aren't really true. He's like, yeah, okay, there are some of these things that we don't understand. Um, and notice the trends there. We do get him talking about predators and him talking about uh, long-lived predators and, and things which are sort of exceptions to the general rules, right? The thing that fascinates me about Seward's reaction to the talk about vampire bats, right, is we see that he hasn't totally forgotten the question of where the blood goes, right? Because here suddenly is a theory, right? If the blood came out and was taken out by something, there is a thing which takes the blood out of people, right? Bats. Vampire bats. But notice his reaction. That such a thing is here in London? Would be one thing, right? Because those are far away things, right? Islands of the Western Seas. Does anyone know where the Pampas is, by the way? I don't really know where the Pampas is. I'd love to know where the Pampas is. Anyway, so it's, But he doesn't just say, such a thing as here in London? That would be weird. South America. Okay. Tomás, you're from the Pampas? Really? That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> that's very cool. Argentina. Okay. Neat. Neat. Um, uh, cool. Awesome. Well, there we go. Um, uh, are there are there vampire bats in the pampas? Is that because it's uh, this is um, this is that's what uh, Quincy refers to? Also, it's it, w- it was in the pampas that his uh, his his favorite mare went down. Uh, no, no vampire bats actually there. Okay. Well, maybe they're not there in the twenty first century. Um, but anyway, notice Doctor Seward saying, "Not just is that such a thing as here in London." But such a thing as here in London in the nineteenth century, see the implications there. Like modernity doesn't have to do with that kind of thing, right? Could that's not possible now, right? I mean, maybe in some story of the wild long ago, right? But um, but not not here and not now. Not in the modern. This kind of thing doesn't happen in nineteenth century. England, right? Um, (laughs) James Pace says vampire bats are not respectable. Uh, 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 Kudos for the Mr. Morrill reference. Um, Let's keep going. His thesis. My thesis is this I want you to believe. To believe what? to believe in things that you cannot. Let me illustrate. I heard once of an American who so defined faith, that faculty which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. Bonus points if you know which American he's paraphrasing. For one, I follow that man. He meant that we shall have an open mind, and not let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth, like a small rock does a railway truck. We get the small truth first. Good We keep him, and we value him, but all the same we must not let him think himself all the truth in the universe. Then you want me not to let some previous conviction injure the receptivity of my mind with regard to some strange matter. Do I read your lesson aright? Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Of course, it's the 19th century American who's being quoted. Who's the most quotable 19th century American? Mark Twain. Yeah, Uh, That's not exactly the words that Mark Twain used. I said something like faith is uh, believing in Things That Ain't, I think, is was exactly his, uh, his, his quotation, but I, I'm pretty sure it's Twain that, uh, Van Helsing is thinking of. Uh, anyway, anyway, um, okay, so, um, now, apart from the fact that I do not think that Mark Twain meant by that quotation what Van Helsing takes him to mean, we see, nevertheless, what Van Helsing is thinking about with this, and how he is talking about faith, right? Um, he is talking about having an open mind as he says that you don't let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth um and the railway truck image there Nancy i believe is like if there's a rock on the rails it can cause the the train car to jump off the rails right it can it can deflect it enough to make it crash right uh, that i think is what is the is the metaphor that he's uh, that he's using, yeah, that you know ain't so, right? That's thank you, Veronica. That, that's the quotation. Believing things that you know ain't so. Um, that's the that's the Twain quotation. Um, okay, okay. So that is the so that that railroad thing is is the metaphor that he's using. So the little truth, um, but it's interesting the little truth and the big truth, right? On the one hand, when he was going through his examples of nature's eccentricities, he was talking about exceptions, right? You would say, like, the way that most spiders act, right, dying small and slow, or no, but sp- dying small and quick, is, uh, is the big truth, like the normal thing. And the one eccentric, unusual, huge, enormous spider who lived for a really long time and came down and drank the oil of the church lamps was the exception to the rule, not the rule, right? Um... But I think by big and little, he only means, in, the, in this sense, sort of like commonplace and extraordinary, right? So, um, the little truth is, the little truth in the sense of garden variety truth, right, is this is how spiders normally are and how they normally live. The big truth is it's possible for this to happen, right? It's possible for there to be a giant, huge, ginormous, long-living spider, right, um, that in the context is in the context in which he's using this seems to be the big truth, right? Um, so you you find the little truth and you keep him and you value him, but you don't let him think himself all the truth in the universe, right? And so we're distracting with him, right? Um, he gets the thesis, right? You don't want some previous conviction to injure the receptivity of my mind with regard to some strange matter. And yet, as soon as Van Helsing says, so by the way, uh, you know, dead Miss Lucy is the one biting the children, he goes berserk, right? He is, in fact, the receptivity of his mind is indeed well impaired uh, by his previous convictions. Now we see that Van, uh, not Van Helsing, Dr. Seward is... I was about to say exceptional, not quite exceptional, but he's a little um, uh, above the... Um, uh, he's on the on the high end of the curve when it comes to skepticism here. Notice that Dr. Vincent goes a step further uh, than Dr. Seward does, right? When he's talking about the wounds on the, the throat of the child in his care, We asked Vincent to what he attributed them, the wounds, and he replied that it must have been the bite of of some animal, perhaps a rat. But for his own part, he was inclined to think that it was one of the bats which are so numerous on the northern heights of London. Out of so many harmless ones, he said, there may be some wild specimen from the south of a more malignant species. Some sailor may have brought one home, and it managed to escape, or even from the zoological gardens. A young one might have got loose, or or uh, or one be bred there from a vampire." These things do occur, you know. Only ten days ago a wolf got out and was, I believe, traced up in this direction. For a week after, the children were playing nothing but Red Riding Hood on the heath and in every alley in the place, until this bloofer lady scare came along, since when it has been quite a gala time with them. Even this poor little mite, when he woke up today, asked the nurse if he might go if he might go away. When she asked him why he wanted to go, he said he wanted to play with the bloofer lady. What's really happening? We know what's really happening. Yes, Nancy, it does suggest that Lucy also has mind control powers, that her victims want to go back to her, that she is calling them back and they want to answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not exactly the same situation, right? They're not sleepwalking. We don't have that same dynamic as we did with Lucy. But um, whatever happened with the bloofer lady, they liked it and they want to go back. Um, and she seems to be calling them back. Um, so notice... Dr. Vincent shows the same kind of general condescension towards the children. He doesn't take the children's story really seriously. But he also goes, as I said, a significant step further than Dr. Seward in explaining the wounds and the blood loss, right? He at least postulates something that could take the blood out. Notice how even the idea that a vampire bat could be in London in the 19th century is something that... Dr. Seward considers outrageous, right? An outrageous suggestion. However, um, Dr. Vincent is perfectly willing to entertain it, and you can see why, right? I mean, there's got to be some reason the blood is left, and the kid's got no blood on his clothes, right? So it didn't just leak out. Um, Something must have sucked it out, and those wounds are the only way it could have gone, right? Where else is the blood supposed to go? How else is it supposed to escape his body? Right, so um, something must have sucked it out. Probably through those wounds. There are things that suck blood out of wounds, like bats. Right, the wounds could possibly fit the bite of a bat, maybe, possibly. So, um, Dr. Seward stops short even of that. Right. Then Dr. Seward goes out to the uh, tomb. Right. Van Helsing takes him out to show him with his own eyes what's going on, right? Um, He's just opened the coffin and found nothing in there. Now, um, did you understand the thing about the leaden coffin, right? So there's there's the, the wooden box, right, which is locked shut, of course. But inside the box, there's, there's a, a layer of lead which is sealed shut. Remember, it's, it's actually airtight because remember when Dr. Van Helsing stabs through the lead and then begins to saw, Dr. Seward steps back, remember, because he expected, um, he expected an outflow of gas right from the decaying corpse. Um exactly, it's um, it, it, Veronica and Joe, as they point out, it, it, it's to keep in the gases of decomposition. It's the point of the leaden coffin, right. So what we have here is a box which is more tightly sealed even than Dracula's boxes in the ship, right? It's not just nailed or screwed down with dirt inside. There's an airtight leaden coffin that her body was in. Um, so what he's looking at here, It's not just an empty coffin. He's looking at an empty coffin, an undisturbed leaden coffin, which Van Helsing cuts open in front of his eyes for the first time. And it's empty. There's no body inside, right? And Van Helsing turns and says, "'Are you satisfied now, friend John?' he asked. "'I felt all the dogged argumentativeness of my nature "'awake within me as I answered him. "'I am satisfied that Lucy's body is not in that coffin, "'but that only proves one thing.' "'And what is that, friend John?' That it is not there. That is good logic, he said, so far as it goes. But how do you, how can you account for it not being there? Perhaps a body snatcher, I suggested. Some of the undertaker's people may have stolen it. I felt I was speaking folly, and yet it was the only real cause which I could suggest. The professor sighed. Ah, well, he said, we must have more proof. Um... Yeah, Mick, I believe this is standard for the time. Uh, There's... I mean, it's expensive. I mean, I I can't imagine that poor people could bury their dead this way. Um, But remember, they're being buried in a marble above-ground tomb. This is not a cheap... this is is, is not burial on the cheap. Um, Yeah, yeah. Anyway... um, (laughs) Nancy Fosberg says, uh, the the first rule of tautology club is the first rule of the tautology club. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, He talks about the dogged argumentativeness of his nature. But the problem is not the argumentativeness. The problem is the premises from which he's willing to argue. Right? If Lucy's body is not there... The only possit, it only it does not prove that she got up and walked away. All it proves is that the body is not there, and the only thing that he can suggest is possibly a body snatcher. Some of the undertakers' people may have stolen it. Um, what does he mean by this? It was a fairly common thing. Um, it's illegal uh, to to dissect cadavers still. Um, so yeah, to procure bodies for scientific research. Exactly, Veronica. Um, it's it's illegal. So therefore, there was a, a trade in black market corpses. Um, remember, this is uh, uh, Dickens plays with this in *Tale of Two Cities*. Right, the guy who is a who is a resurrection man. Right, it's what he does. Is he uh, he he goes after, uh, um, he f- sort of follows uh, funerals. Right? and when everybody leaves, he digs up the fresh corpse and uh, and sells it to a scientist on the sly. Right. Um, anyway, that's um, that's. Com- but again, that doesn't make sense. Right, because if it was a body snatcher, if it was, th- then it um, the leaden coffin would have had to have been cut open for her body to have been taken out. Um, which is why he suggests that the undertakers people. Right, one of them might be um, selling cadavers, right, on the black market. Um, and yeah, Penny, you're right, the the, the body snatching, like the Dickens novel, is much earlier than the 1880s, right? Um, it's already, I, I mean, I, is it still illegal? I, I don't remember. I don't know for sure if dissecting human corpses is still illegal in, 18, in the 1880s. Um, it was legal in 1832, Tom. Okay, there we go. So... There's not even a good reason to suspect that, then. Notice how the, the... Anatomy Act, was it? Indeed. How about that? I didn't know about the Anatomy Act. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. So it is legal. Which makes his uh, suggestion of the body snatcher the more unlikely, right? Um, the more um, the more implausible. It might have been plausible, perhaps, in the days of Dr. Frankenstein, Veronica, exactly as you point out. Um, it would have been perhaps more plausible, but... but what, what, why? Why is it? Presumably the market for corpses has, uh, uh, has, has dried up at this point. True enough, Joe, Michael says, the fact that it's legal doesn't mean there's an adequate supply, so perhaps there's still a black market. But still. Um, he's, uh, he feels, the important thing is that even he, even Dr. Seward, feels that he is speaking folly. Right? He does not believe what he's saying. He says it because it's the only thing that could possibly explain it within the parameters that he's willing to accept, right? But that's the point. That's what Dr. Van Helsing has been emphasizing all along. The point is not your mind, it's not your reason, it's not your intelligence. The point is how narrow is what you're willing to believe, how closed your mind is, right? Um, it might be foolish to believe that it was body snatchers, but it is comforting, Compared to thinking about anything else, um, we see the same kind of folly when he reacts to the, you know, when they find the child, right? So they're hiding next to the tomb. Um, he sees something white moving, right? And then he sees Van Helsing or a dark shape moving from where Van Helsing was standing <clears throat> over. And then he comes over and they find the child there, right? Um, where they heard the sound. I heard the rustle of actual movement where I had first seen the white figure, and coming over, found the professor holding in his arms a tiny child. When he saw me, he held it out to me, and said, Are you satisfied now? No, I said in a way that I felt was aggressive. Do you not see the child? Yes, it is a child. But who brought it here? And is it wounded? I asked. We shall see, said the professor, and with one impulse we took our way out of the churchyard, he carrying the sleeping child. "'When we had got some little distance away, "'we went into a clump of trees and struck a match "'and looked at the child's throat. "'It was without a scratch or scar of any kind. "'Was I right?' I asked triumphantly. "'We were just in time,' said the professor, thankfully. "'Under the circumstances, given what the... "'I mean, the whole premise, right? "'Remember, the thing that Dr. Van Helsing is trying to prove "'is that it's Lucy that is kidnapping and biting the children.' And sure enough, here we have, I mean, Dr. Seward is sort of, is, is suggest. well, if it doesn't have wounds on its throat, then there's no proof, right? And yet, hiding outside Lucy's tomb, they found a kidnapped child brought right there to Lucy's tomb. Why would, if the, if it wasn't Lucy, if it was not dead Miss Lucy, which brought the child, who did and why? The child is asleep. It didn't walk there, right? Um... I mean, it maybe it's sleepwalk, but again, that it doesn't even match what he himself just saw with his own eyes, right? So um, we can see how doggedly he is sticking to his how 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 adamantly he refuses to bend. What is the only thing that finally makes him begin to bend? Right, is when he sees with his own eyes something which cannot be explained. Right. He bent over again. This is the next day. During the day, right? He bent over and again forced back the leaden flange. That is the, the cut that they made, right? And then a shock of surprise and dismay shot through me. There lay Lucy, seemingly just as we had seen her the night before her funeral. And apparently undissected, She was, if possible, more radiantly beautiful than ever, and I could not believe that she was dead. The lips were red, nay, redder than before, and on the cheeks was a delicate bloom. Is this a juggle? I said to him. Are you convinced now? said the professor in response, and as he spoke he put over his hand, and in a way that made me shudder, pulled back the dead lips and showed the white teeth. See, he went on, see they are even sharper than before. With this and this, and he touched one of the canine teeth, and that below it. See, notice the top and bottom thing. The children can be bitten. Are you of belief now, friend John? Uh, and I didn't include the bit where, you know, he's still reluctant to believe it, right? Um, like, you know, somebody she could have put her back there. Right? Yes, Penny exactly he's suggesting that the body snatchers have a return policy, apparently. Um, uh, but, um, uh, then remember Dr. Dr. Van Helsing says, Indeed, it is so, right? But most peoples in... The, she has been dead one week, and most peoples in this time would not look so, right? She doesn't exactly look like a normal week-old corpse, Um, Yes, Veronica. For Dr. Seward, um, who knows what decomposing corpses look like, uh, the lack of decomposition is evidence of the supernatural that even he cannot um, avoid. Right. Um. Yeah. Now... So here he begins to believe. This is the first thing that finally does in his stubbornness. By the, notice, when he's saying, "Is this a juggle?" Um, yeah, Nancy. He's suggesting prestidigitation. He sugg- "This is a trick of some kind, right?" Since he can't think of any other explanation, the last, his last refuge is must be a trick of some kind, some sleight of hand, right? Ben Helsing is doing it with mirrors. I don't know how exactly this is going, but that's his, that's his last question, right? Um, this finally breaks through, but we see how terribly far Van Helsing has to go to get Dr. Seward to believe, to get him to put aside the skeptical suppositions that it seems that Stoker is anticipating even his readers may be bringing to the story. Certainly... The epigraph anticipates that the readers will, will be bringing that, right? And finally, confront what's really happening. So what is really happening? I want to go further next time. I want to go further than we've gone. Three chapters further. No, that's not, that's not what I mean. I want to go... Um, I want to go... Uh, not we, We've played the What Really Happened game a lot, and we'll keep doing that. Um... But I want to go further. Um, Not just what really happened, what actually occurred, what events occurred, but what's happening. What's the real story? What do we learn about the nature of vampirism? And the confrontation with Dead Miss Lucy, which is imminent, who was set up at the end of chapter uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, Um, was set up at the end of chapter 15 when he He, Van Helsing, tells Arthur, Arthur and Quincy and Dr. Seward are all going to show up at the tomb that night, right? So um, something's going to happen. Anyway, we learn a lot in that scene. When we meet Lucy again, pay really careful attention. I'm going to want to go through almost every word of that encounter. There's some really important stuff that we learn here. Um, And we'll think back over some of the things that we have observed but not really talked about in that context tonight. So, I'll let you guys go. Uh, keeping you late here again, my apologies. So, good night, everybody, and I will see you guys next week for class number six as we finally meet the undead Miss Lucy. Good night, everybody. Bye.